0: Section Thirty Two of the Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume Ten. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Butros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume Ten. Section 32. George Couples, 1822-1891. to 1891. Although the Scotch lowlands were settled by men of pure Anglican blood, the neighboring highlands and the original Celtic inhabitants of the locality have contributed a strain from another of the primitive Aryan stocks, to the great enrichment in fervour and emotional expressiveness of the people the scotchman retains the energy perseverance and executive masterfulness of his brothers in yorkshire and northumberland but has in addition a vein of romantic imagination and a touch of celtic excitability he may be dour and canny and yet not destitute of an instinct for music and colour his name may contain the celtic mac or col or the english tun or sun but even when his name comes from one source his genius may derive from the other stevenson's name is english but his literary work has the celtic vividness brilliancy pathos and sense of congruous form carlyle's name is celtic but in him lies the grim hardness of the norse seafarers and the deification of duty and the impulse to subordinate form to substance characteristic of the saxon the scotchman is born to a rich inheritance of tradition english wars border forays centuries of turbulent life embalmed in legend and ballad. He lives on the scene of action of historical personages who become as real to him as Holyrood or Author's seat. Scotch national consciousness lies deep in the soul of Scotchmen, though the kingdom be merged into Great Britain, and gives them an individuality and pride of lineage which colors their literature they are loyal to the bruce even when they sing god save the queen blackwoods of the middle of the century though reckoning the englishmen bulwer lytton and de quincey among its honored contributors was an intensely scottish magazine and its scottish staff was marked by a distinctive literary tone a compound of boyish high spirits and old-fashioned conservatism such as we sometimes notice in the cadets of a noble house to whom their family traditions are sacred but the necessity of a decorous bearing before the world not at all apparent the wit of the Noctes is not very subtle, but it is hearty and clean, though it needs high spirits to make it seem amusing. The scholarship is not very profound, but it reaches back to traditions of gentlemanly culture and thoroughly distrusts modern preciosity. Nothing is literature in the estimation of these writers unless it is classic or Scotch all of them are marked by a hearty love for outdoor sports and a patriotism enthusiastic indeed but rather circumscribed though perhaps on that very account all the more intense Professor Wilson is the most typical individual of these writers, and George Couples of the next generation one of the most interesting, and on the whole the one whose literary gift was the most decided and original. George Couples was born at Ledgerwood, August 2, 1822, and died October 7, 1891. His father was a minister of the Free Kirk, and his paternal ancestors had been calvinistic ministers for at least three generations it was natural that the young man should be intended for the same profession but he did not feel drawn to it and when about seventeen went to sea for two years although of a firm physical constitution the life of the seaman wearied him and he resumed his education at the university of edinburgh He fell naturally into a literary career, and though much of his work was journalistic, he was reckoned in his day a critic of true insight. His novels are his best title to reputation, and show a vein of genuine creative power. Couples combined some of the sterling and attractive traits of the cultured Scotchman of the period into a genuine manly and winning personality though slightly whimsical his peculiarities were of the kind that endear a man to his friends and couples numbered among his dr john brown dr sterling blackwood and many others of the cultivated scotchmen of the period the green hand which came out in blackwood from eighteen forty eight to eighteen fifty one is one of the best sea stories ever written if we put Stevenson's Treasure Island first for balance of description and narration and sureness in the character touches, the Green Hand and Tom Kringle's Log are close seconds. Couples' book is perhaps slightly overloaded with description and deficient in technical construction as a narrative but it is nevertheless a story which we read without skipping for the descriptive pages are highly charged with the poetic element and bear the unmistakable marks of being based on actual observation life in a sailing vessel has closer contact with the elemental moods of nature than in a steamer where the motive power is a mechanical contrivance with the tiresome quality of regularity to be in alliance or warfare with the wind and dependent on its fitful moods, brought an element of variety and interest into the seaman's life which steam navigation, with its steadily revolving screw and patent valves, must always lack. Of this, Couples avails himself to the fullest extent, and it would be difficult to find a better presentation of the mysterious life and vastness of the ocean and of the subtle impression it makes on those brought in daily contact with it not excepting victor hugo's toilers of the sea this is due to the fact that he spent two years before the mast when a young man especially noticeable too is his admirable use of adjectives denoting colour which are descriptive because they image truly the observations of a man of genius and are not as in so much modern writing purple patches sewed on without any real feeling for the rich and subtle scheme of nature in calling up to the imagination the sounds of the sea the creaking of the blocks the wind in the rigging the wash of the water on the sides the ripple on the bow and the infinite variety of the voice of the waves couples shows true poetic power It is not too much to say that the green hand does not suffer from the fact that one of the parts stands in the magazine in juxtaposition to De Quincey's vision of sudden death. Kylo Jock and the Weird of Wanton Walls is a transcript from the boy life of the author. It appeared in Macmillan's magazine in the autumn numbers of 1860 it is but a short sketch of a group of simple people in a secluded border parish but the quality of the writer is shown as well in small things as in great ones in it the wintry scenes especially are given with broad and sure touches for the author is a genuine lover of nature but the characters of kirsty the nurse and of Kylo jock the half-savage herd-boy who knows so well the wild creatures of the woods and fields that he has even given names to the foxes show the feeling for human nature and the ability to embody it which marks the artist Kylo jock's scotch Is said to be an absolutely perfect reproduction of the vernacular, and it might be said that this book, like some of our modern Scotch stories, would be better if the dialect were not quite so good. The peculiar qualities of the author are not seen to such good advantage in another book of his, Scotch Deerhounds and Their Masters. He was a breeder and unquestioned authority on the grand dog, and accumulated a store of curious information on its origin and history. But his enthusiasm for this noble breed, or race, as he loves to call it, and it certainly is the finest and most striking of all the varieties of the friend of man, led him into some strange vagaries, one would almost suspect him of holding the theory that dogs domesticated man. so high does he rank them as agents of early civilization his etymology and his ethnology are alike erratic he holds that every ancient people in whose name can be found the combinations gal alb or iber or any other syllable of a Celtic word was of the Celtic family, and that the Scotch deerhound and the Irish greyhound are descendants of the primeval Celtic dog. In this way he proves that the Carthaginians and the shepherd kings of Egypt were undoubtedly Celts, for their sculpture shows that they hunted with large swift dogs that sprang at the throat of their prey. On the other hand, every tribe that owned large clumsy dogs that barked is probably non-celtic mr cupples contempt for such dogs is too intense for definite statement and he evidently thinks that the tribe that owns them cannot hope to rise very high in the scale of civilization this is certainly philo-celtism run mad and is the more remarkable because mr cupples could discover no Celtic strain in his own ancestry. He gave his dogs, however, Celtic names as Luath, Shulach, Maeda, Morna, Malvina, Oscar, etc. It would have been quite impossible for him to disgrace one of his tall, swift, venatic hounds with so Saxon a name as Rover or Barkis. But his enthusiasm is so genuine, and there is such a wealth of curious information in his pages, that his book has a charm and a substantial value of its own. The other work of Mr. Couples was, like that of most of the journalistic men of letters of the period, largely anonymous. His essay on Emerson, contributed to the Douglas Gerald's magazine, is very highly spoken of, Personally, Mr. Couples must have been a man of great simplicity and charm, a happy combination of the genuine and most agreeable traits of that hearty and outspoken variety of man, the literary Scotchman. SELECTION In the Tropics From the Green Hand By George Couples I looked up the after-hatchway. It seemed still quite dark and a patch of the deep dark blue sky showed high over the square opening, with two or three keen sparks of stars, green ones and blue ones. You'd have thought the latter, short as it was, went up to somewhere clean above the world. But the moment I got on deck, I saw it was really lighter, the heavy fog creeping slowly astern off the ship on both hands, the white mist rolling faster over it before the sea-breeze against her bows which had swung seaward by this time from the tide that rushed like a mill-stream upon both her tight cables while the muddy river water bubbling eddying and frothing away past spread far up in the middle into the dark astern such a jabbering, croaking, hissing, shrieking, and yelling, too, as burst into one's ears out of the dark, as if whole legions of monkeys, bullfrogs, parrots, parakeets, and whatnot, were coming together full upon us from both sides, one band nearer than the other, till the heavy boom of the surf round the point, and the roar of the tide coming in over the shallows about the river mouth pretty well drowned it the sudden change was a good relief babble though it seemed after the closeness below with what had been going on and i looked ahead toward the sea which lay away out off our larboard bow round the headland and over the opposite point a cold watery streak of light showing it from where the breakers rose plunging and scattering along the sandy bar to the steady gray line of horizon clipped by one of the two brown chops we had got into it looked dreary enough as yet the mouth of it being wider than i'd fancied it from seaward at night though even with full water over the long spit of sand in the middle there was no draught at all for the indiaman except by the channel betwixt it and the bold point on our right and pretty narrow it appeared from our present berth, heaving as it did with the green swell that set in, while meantime the mist scudding across the face of the headland let me see but the hard lump of bare black rock underneath. In less time than I've taken to speak, however, the full space of sky aloft was turning clear. The sea, far away, suddenly shone out blue, with the surges tipped white, you saw a sparkling star high over it sink slowly in and the fog spread off the water near us till here and there you caught the muffled-up shape of a big tree or two looming through not half a mile off our starboard quarter the mist creeping over the headland till the sharp peak of it stood out against its shadow on the shoulder of a hill beyond and old bob martin's single clump of cocos on the rise waving in landward from the brisk sea-breeze. One passenger after another came peeping sleepily out of the companion hatch, at the men clearing away the wreck of the spars and swabbing the quarter-deck down. But scarce had Smith, one of the young writers, reached the poop when he gave a shout that covered both poop ladders in no time, with people scrambling over each other to get up. Next minute you'd have fancied them a knot of flamingos with their wings out as the bright red daybreak brought out the edge of the woods far astern, through a hazy lane in the purple mist, topped so with stray coconut trees and cabbage palms, dabbled like brushes in the color, that they scarce knew them to be woods at all and not a whole lot of wild savages fresh from other business of the kind coming down with all sorts of queer tools upon us more especially when one heard such a chorus of unaccountable cries whistling and screaming as seemed to struggle with the sound of the sea ahead of us and the splash alongside the huge round sun struck hot crimson along the far turn of the beach with all manner of twisted blots upon him, as it were, and the very grass and long reeds seemingly rustling into his face, so one didn't for the moment know him either, while the muddy chocolate-colored eddies, sweeping and closing beyond the ship's rudder, glittered and frothed up like blood, and every here and there, along the streak of light, the head of a log, or a long branch came dipping up terribly plain no wonder the old seringapitam had apparently turned tail to it all ready to bolt if she could almost as soon as you took your hands off your eyes though and could see without a red ball or two before them there was the nearest shore growing out toward our starboard bulwark all along crowded with wet green woods up into steaming high ground all to eastward a dazzle of light with two or three faint mountain peaks shooting up far off in it and a woody blue hill or so between while here and there a broad bright hazy spoke off the sun came cutting down into the forest that brought a patch full of long big leaves ten times greener than the rest and let look off the deck into the heart of it among the stems over the bank the jabber in the woods had passed off all at once with the dusk the water deepening over the bar and the tide running slower so that every one's confused face turned breathless with delight and it grew stiller and stiller the whole breadth of the river shone out by this time full and smooth to the opposite shore three times as far away, where the wood and bulrushes seemed to grow out of the water. A long, thick range of low, muddy-looking mangroves, with a cover of dark green, rounding from the farthest point one saw, down to some sandy hummocks near the mouth, and a ridge of the same drifted up by the wind off the beach. Beyond that side there was nothing apparently but a rolling sweep of long coarse grass with a few straggling coconut-trees and baobabs like big swollen logs on end and taken to sprouting at top a dun-coloured heave of land in the distance too that came out as it got hotter in a long desert-like red-brick dust sort of a glare The sole living things to be seen as yet were some small birds rising up out of the long grass, and the turkey buzzards sailing high over all across, as if on the lookout. The air was so cool and clear, however, from the tornado overnight, not a cloud in the sky, and the strange scent of the land reaching us as the dew rose off it you could see far and wide with a delicious feeling of it all that kept every one standing there on the spot where he first gained the deck even the men looking over their shoulders with the ropes in their fists and the fresh morning breeze lifting one's hair selection napoleon at st helena from the green hand by george cupples i had to get fairly off the saddle Rather sore, I must say, with riding up St. Helena Roads after so many weeks at sea, and flung myself down on the grass with little enough fear of the hungry little beast getting far adrift. This said crag, by the way, drew my eye to it by the queer colors it showed white, blue, gray, and bright red in the hot sunlight. And being too far off to make out clearly, I slung off the ship's glass I had across my back, just to overhaul it better. The hue of it was to be seen running all down the deep rift between, that seemingly wound away into some glen toward the coast while the lot of plants and trailers half covering the steep front of it would, no doubt, I thought, have delighted my old friend the Yankee, if he was the botanizing gentleman in question. By this time it was a lovely afternoon far and wide to Diana's peak, the sky glowing clearer deep blue at that height than you'd have thought sky could do, even in the tropics the very peaks of bare red rock being softened into a purple tint far off around you. One saw into the rough bottom of the huge devil's punch-ball, and far through without a shadow down the green patches in the little valleys and over Deadwood Camp, there was nothing, as it were, between the grass, the ground, the stones and leaves, and the empty hollow of the air, while the sea spread far round underneath of a softer blue than the sky over you you'd have thought all the world was shrunk into saint helena with the atlantic lying three-quarters round it in one sight like the horns of the bright new moon round the dim old one which saint helena pretty much resembled if what the star-gazers say of its surface be true all peaks and dry hollows if indeed you weren't lifting up out of the world, so to speak, when one looked through his fingers right into the keen blue overhead. If I lived a thousand years, I couldn't tell half what I felt lying there. But as you may imagine, it had somewhat in it of the late European war by land and sea not that i could have said so at the time but rather a sort of half doze such as i've known one have when a schoolboy lying on the green grass the same way with one's face turned up into the hot summer heavens half of it flying glimpses, as it were, of the French Revolution, the battles we used to hear of when we were children, then the fears about the invasion, with the channel full of British fleets and Dover cliffs, Trafalgar and Nelson's death, and the Battle of Waterloo, just after we heard he had got out of Elba. In the terrible flash of the thing altogether, one almost fancied them all gone like smoke, and for a moment I thought I was falling away off, down into the wide sky, so up I started to sit. From that, suddenly, I took to guessing, and puzzling closely again, how I should go to work myself if I were the strange Frenchman I saw in the brig at sea, and wanted to manage Napoleon's escape out of St. Helena. And first there was how to get into the island and put him up to the scheme, why sure enough i couldn't have laid it down better than they seemed to have done all along what could one do but just dodge about that latitude under all sorts of false rig then catch hold of somebody fit to cover one's landing no englishman would do it and no foreigner but would set sir hudson low on his guard in a moment next we should have to get put on the island and really a neat enough plan it was to dog one of the very cruisers themselves knock up a mess of planks and spars in the night-time set them all ablaze with tar and pretend we were fresh from a craft on fire when even captain wallace of the Podargus, as it happened was too much of a british seaman not to carry us straight to st helena Again, I must say it was a touch beyond me, but to hit the governor's notions of a hobby, and go picking up plants around Longwood, was a likely enough way to get speech of the prisoner, or at least let him see one was there. How should I set about carrying him off to the coast, though? That was the prime matter seeing that even if the schooner which was no doubt hovering out of sight were to make a bold dash for the land with the trade wind in a night eleven hours long there were sentries close round longwood from sunset the starlight shining mostly always in the want of a moon and at any rate there was rock and gully enough betwixt here and the coast to try the surest foot aboard the heap let alone an emperor With plenty of woods for a cover, one might steal up close to Longwood, but the bare rocks showed you off to be made a mark of. But why were those same blacks on the island, I thought? Just strip them stark naked and let them lie in the devil's punch-bowl, or somewhere beyond military hours, when I warrant me they might slip up, gully by gully, to the very sentries' backs. Their color wouldn't show them, and savages as they seemed, couldn't they settle as many sentries as they needed? Creep into the very bedchamber where Bonaparte slept, and manhandle him bodily away, down through some of the nearest hollows, before anyone was the wiser? The point that still bothered me was, why the fourth of the blacks was wanting at present, unless he had his part to play elsewhere. If it was chance, then the hull might be a notion of mine, which I knew I was apt to have sometimes. If I could only make out the fourth black, so as to tally with the scheme. On the other hand, then I thought it was all sure. But of course this quite palled me, and I gave it up to work out my fancy case by providing signals betwixt us plotters inside and the schooner, out of sight from the telegraphs. There was no use for her to run in and take the risk, without good luck having turned up on the island. Yet any sign she could profit by must be both sufficient to reach sixty miles or so, and hidden enough not to alarm the telegraphs or the cruisers. Here was a worse puzzle than all, and I only guessed at it for my own satisfaction, as a fellow can't help doing when he hears a question he can't answer till my eye lighted on Diana's peak near three thousand feet above the sea. There it was by Jove. T'was quite clear at the time, but by nightfall there was always more or less cloud near the top. And if you set a fire on the very peak, t'would only be seen leagues off. A notion that brought to mind a similar thing which I told you saved the Indiaman from a lee shore one night on the African coast. And again, by George, I saw that must have been meant at first by the Negroes as a smoke to help the French brig easier in. Putting that and that together, why, it struck me at once what the fourth black's errand might be, namely, to watch for the schooner and kindle his signal as soon as he couldn't see the island for mist. I was sure of it and as for a dark night coming on at sea, the freshening of the breeze there promised nothing more likely. A bright white haze was softening out the horizon already, and here and there the egg of a cloud could be seen to break off the sky to windward, all of which would be better known afloat than here. The truth was, I was on the point of tripping my anchor to hurry down and get aboard again, but on standing up the head of a peak fell below the sail i had noticed in the distance and seeing she loomed large on the stretch of water i pretty soon found she must be a ship of the line the telegraph over the alarm-house was hard at work again so i e'en took down my glass and cleaned it to have a better sight during which i caught sight for a minute of some soldier officer or other on horseback with a mounted red coat behind him riding hastily up the gully a good bit from my back till they were round the red piece of crag turning at times as if to watch the vessel though i couldn't have a better spy at him for want of my glass i had no doubt he was the governor himself for the sentries in the distance took no note of him There was nobody else visible at the time, and the said cliff stood fair up like a lookout place, so as to shut them out as they went higher. Once or twice after I fancied I made out a man's head or two lower down the gully than the cliff was, which, it occurred to me, might possibly be the botanists, as they called themselves, busy finding out how long St. Helena had been an island. However, I soon turned the glass before me upon the ship, by this time right opposite the ragged opening of Prosperous Bay, and heading well up about fourteen miles or so off the coast, as I reckoned to make Jamestown Harbour. The moment I had the sight of the glass right for her, though you'd have thought she stood still on the smooth, soft blue water, I could see her hull beam rise off the swells before me, from the dark side and white band, checkered with a double row of ports, to the hamper of her lofty spars, and the sails braced slant to the breeze, the foam gleaming under her high bows, and her wake running aft in the heave of the sea. She was evidently a seventy-four. I fancied I could make out her men's faces peering over the yards toward the island, as they thought of bony part. A white rear-admiral's flag was at the mizzen royal masthead, leaving no doubt she was the conqueror at last, with Admiral Plampin, and in a day or two at farthest the heave would be bound for India.' i had just looked over my shoulder toward longwood letting the conqueror sink back again into a thing no bigger than a model on a mantelpiece when all at once i saw someone standing near the brow of the cliff i mentioned apparently watching the vessel with a long glass at his eye like myself twas farther than i could see to make out anything save so much and ere I had screwed the glass for such a near sight, there were seven or eight figures more appearing half over the slope behind, while my hand shook so much with holding the glass so long that at first I brought it to bear full on the cracks and blocks in the front of the crag, with the large green leaves and trailers on it, flickering idly with the sunlight against my eyes, till I could have seen the spiders inside, I dare say. Next I held it too high, where the Admiral and Lord Frederick were standing by their horses a good way back, the Governor as I supposed sitting on his, and two or three others along the rise. At length, what with kneeling down to rest it on one knee, I had the glass steadily fixed on the brow of the rocks, where I plainly saw a tall, dark-whiskered man in a rich French uniform, gazing to seaward i knew him i sought too well by pictures however not to be sadly galled suddenly a figure came slowly down from before the rest with his hands behind his back and his head a little drooped the officer at once lowered the telescope and held it to him stepping upward as if to leave him alone what dress he had on i scarce noticed but there he was standing single in the round bright field of the glass i had hold of like a vice his head raised his hands hiding his face as i kept the telescope fixed fair in front of me only i saw the smooth broad round of his chin i knew as if i'd seen him in the tuileries at paris or known him by sight since i was a boy i knew it was napoleon During that minute the rest of them were out of sight, so far as the glass went, you'd have supposed there was no one there but himself, as still as a figure in iron, watching the same thing, no doubt, as I'd done myself five minutes before, where the noble seventy-four was beating slowly to windward. When I did glance to the knot of officers twenty yards back, twas as if one saw a ring of his generals waiting respectfully while he eyed some field of battle or other, with his army at the back of the hill. But next moment the telescope fell in his hands, and his face, as pale as death, with his lip firm under it, seemed near enough for me to touch it. His eyes shot stern into me from below his wide white forehead, and I started, dropping my glass in turn, that instant the whole wild lump of st helena with its ragged brim the clear blue sky and the sea swung round about the dwindled figures above the crag till they were nothing but so many people together against the slope beyond "'Twas a strange scene to witness, let me tell you. "'Never can I forget the sightless, "'thinking sort of gaze from that head of his, "'after the telescope sank from his eye, "'when the conqueror must have shot back "'with all her stately hamper "'into the floor of the Atlantic again. "'Once more I brought my spy-glass to bear "'on the place where he had been, "'and was almost on the point of calling out "'to warn him off the edge of the cliff forgetting the distance, I was away. Napoleon had stepped, with one foot behind him, on the very brink, his two hands hanging loose by his side with the glass in one of them, till the shadow of his small black cocked hat covered the hollows of his eyes, and he stood, as it were, looking down past the face of the precipice what he thought of no mortal tongue can say whether he was master at the time over a wilder battle than any he'd ever fought but just then what was the surprise it gave me to see the head of a man with a red tasselled cap on it raised through among the ivy from below while he seemed to have his feet on the cracks and juts of the rock hoisting himself by one hand round the tangled roots till no doubt he must have looked right aloft into the french emperor's face and perhaps he whispered something though for my part it was all dumb show to me where i knelt peering into the glass i saw even him start at the suddenness of the thing he raised his head upright still glancing down over the front of the crag with the spread hand lifted and the side of his face half turned toward the party within earshot behind where the governor and the rest apparently kept together out of respect no doubt watching both napoleon's back and the ship of war far beyond the keen sunlight on the spot brought out every motion of the two in front the one so full in my view that i could mark his look settle again on the other below his firm lips parting and his hand out before him like a man seeing a spirit he knew while a bunch of leaves on the end of a wand came stealing up from the stranger's post to napoleon's very fingers the head of the man on the cliff turned round seaward for one moment ticklish as his footing must have been then he looked back pointing with his loose hand to the horizon there was one minute between them without a motion seemingly the captive emperor's chin was sunk on his breast though you'd have said his eyes glanced up out of the shadow on his forehead and the stranger's red cap hung like a bit of the bright-coloured cliff under his two hands holding among the leaves then i saw napoleon lift his hand calmly he gave a sign with it it must have been refusing it might have been agreeing or it might have been farewell i never expect to know but he folded his arms across his breast with a bunch of leaves in his fingers and stepped slowly back from the brink toward the officers I was watching the stranger below it, as he swung there for a second or two, in a way like to let him go dash to the bottom, his face slewing wildly seaward again. Short though the glance I had of him was, his features set hard in some bitter feeling or other, his dress different too, besides the moustache being off, and his complexion no doubt purposely darkened. It served to prove what I'd suspected, he was no other than the frenchman i had seen in the brig and mad or sensible the very look i caught was more like that he faced the thunder squall with than aught beside directly after he was letting himself carefully down with his back to my glass the party above were moving off over the brow of the crags and the governor riding round apparently to come once more down the hollow between us in fact the seventy-four, had stood by this time so far in that the peaks in the distance shut her out. But I ran the glass carefully along the whole horizon in my view, for signs of the schooner. The haze was too bright, however, to make sure either way, though, dead to windward, there were some streaks of cloud risen with the breeze, where I once or twice fancied I could catch the gleam of a speck in it. THE PODARGUS WAS TO BE SEEN THROUGH A NOTCH IN THE ROCKS, TOO, BEATING OUT IN A DIFFERENT DIRECTION, AS IF THE TELEGRAPH HAD SIGNALLED HER ELSEWHERE, AFTER WHICH YOU HEARD THE DULL RUMBLE OF THE FORTS SALUTING THE CONQUEROR DOWN AT JAMESTOWN AS SHE CAME IN, AND BEING LATE IN THE AFTERNOON, IT WAS HIGH TIME FOR ME TO CROWD SAIL DOWNWARD, TO FALL IN WITH MY SHIPMATES. End of section 32